Coming up on Stu Does America. You get a trillion dollars. <laughs> you get a trillion dollars. You get a trillion dollars. Everybody gets a trillion dollars in our apparent new reality of everlasting stimulus. We'll give you the details. Plus, there's no such thing as a libertarian in a pandemic. At least that's what social media is constantly telling me these days. Scott Lincecum from the Cato Institute is here to tell us if he still exists. And the Blaze's own Giancarlo Sopo calls in from quarantine to discuss how the media is attacking religious groups for trying to help sick people. Hmm. You can get every episode of the show for free on Facebook, YouTube, Pluto TV, or your favorite podcast platform. I simply ask you to take a moment to subscribe to us, like us, hit the little bell on YouTube to get video notifications, rate us, review us. I'm actually asking for a lot of things from you. I'm sorry about that. But maybe if you can help me out, I can get you a trillion dollars in the next stimulus package. I'll work on it. And if you want to elevate yourself above the rest of the beautiful, brilliant freeloaders I just mentioned, consider a subscription to Blaze TV, where you'll get access to this show and tons of others. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and be sure to enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And it will save you 30 bucks off the subscription price. blazetv.com slash stew. The promo code is stew. Remember, at the end of all this, everything is going to be fine. April Fools! Stew does America. Okay, guys, seriously, guys, I know these are tough times. I know everything sucks. I know we're all gaining 20 pounds, but is there no limit? Not to the weight gain. I know there's no limit to that, but I mean, is there no limit to how much money we're going to spend? Does anyone care anymore? Hello? At some point. Have we stimulated enough? I've had enough stimulation to last a lifetime. Here's the tweet from the president yesterday. With interest rates for the United States being at zero, this is the time to do our decades-long awaited infrastructure bill. It should be very big and bold. Two trillion dollars and be focused solely on jobs and rebuilding the once great infrastructure of our country. Phase four. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we just spend $2 trillion like a week ago? Actually, no, it was uh, four days before this new $2 trillion tweet. We were spending $2 trillion before. We haven't even started spending the money from the last $2 trillion pile, and we need a new one, really? As you might expect, when trillions of dollars are being spent, the Democrats are suddenly interested in bipartisanship. President Trump wants infrastructure money and Nancy Pelosi wants money for everything, including but not limited to infrastructure like roads and bridges, overhauling water supplies and expanding broadband access. Ooh, I can't wait. Are we building a bridge to an island that has a cure for COVID-19? Is that what we're doing? Are we going to drown the virus in our water supply? Might be worth a try. Are we going to put the virus on our router and hope the Wi-Fi kills it? We could Wi-Fi it to death. I know there are some coronavirus related expenditures as well, such as money for increased tests. But really, like we couldn't squeeze that into the last two trillion dollar bill. There's twenty five million dollars for maintenance of the Kennedy Center, but we couldn't get covid-19 tests. (sighs) Look, I got it. You know, Trump ran on a big kind of flashy Keynesian infrastructure bill, or at least it was big by 2016 standards. Only one trillion dollars. A pittance. 
and he was working with Nancy Pelosi last year, coincidentally, on a $2 trillion stimulus plan. So we luckily have something ready to go. Quick side note, nothing good comes out of working with Nancy Pelosi. Nothing. I might be a little bit jaded here. It's possible. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this bill might just wind up being a tad larger than $2 trillion when everything is said and done. Why would I think such a thing? Oh, well, let's look back at our credit card bill from the past couple of weeks. Phase one, we spent $8.3 billion on a lot of stuff that seemed like it was really related to the coronavirus. Okay, fine. Phase two was the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which spent $350 billion on paid leave, childcare, food stamps, and other long-term Democrat wish list items that are supposed to be temporary but will, of course, become permanent. Phase three, Chuck Schumer, who's apparently sharing speechwriters with Trump on some of the stuff, said, we will, be, uh, we will need big, bold, urgent federal action to deal with this crisis. The kinds of targeted measures we are putting together will mainline money into the economy and directly into the hands of families that need it most. His idea of big and bold, his idea of a big ask for phase three, Schumer wanted $750 billion. Oh, but this is a negotiation, right? Like, where are those cost cutters on the Republican side? Where are they going to propose? The White House had been discussing a package of more than $800 billion. But wait, there's more. The Treasury Department was preparing to unveil a package of $850 billion. This is fun. Let's keep going with this headline from CBS. White House and Senate focus on $1 trillion coronavirus stimulus package. How long did it take them to get up to $1 trillion after passing the previous $350 billion? Negative minutes. They hadn't even voted on the previous package yet. Quote, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said in a press conference on Capitol Hill that senators will first vote on an earlier aid package that passed the House over the weekend before moving on to a much larger phase three deal outlined by administration officials just hours before. But guess what, America? You can't outspend Democrats, no matter how hard you try. So when you take their $750 billion offer and up it to $1 trillion, guess what happens next? Two days later, quote, the current figures being discussed include proposals of around $1.2 trillion, are not without their defenders, or at least in the first step in trying to avoid a total economic collapse. That's when the fight really started. The battle, in a large sense, has evolved into a blame game as both sides race to fill the massive package, now approaching $2 trillion, with provisions favorable to their competing constituencies. Ugh. Only when Nancy Pelosi finally proposed $2.5 trillion uh, did anyone actually step up and tap the brakes and back it off to a, just a trim $2.2 trillion. That does not include the $4 trillion in loans from the Federal Reserve, obviously. <laughs> he wouldn't want to throw that in there. And we couldn't wait more than four days for another $2 trillion? Look, I know Trump didn't run as a libertarian. I get that he's not exactly a fiscal hawk. But we are in a time where there is literally no opposition to spending from either party. We used to say that the Republicans and the Democrats were kind of both heading the same direction, except one was in a Volkswagen and the other one was in a Bugatti. Well, now both sides are just bought private jets and they're racing each other. It's not that Trump's new infrastructure bill is going to cost $2 trillion. It's that $2 trillion is the opening negotiating position for the Republicans. 
Chuck Schumer might come back with something in the mid-quadrillions. And then if Nancy Pelosi gets a hold of it, oh my gosh, we may be finally learning what the word quintillion really means. Honest question here. And I, I know this is a tough thing. I, I get it. This, this time is crazy. But is there a point where we get pissed at this? I mean, I know this is a terrible crisis and bending rules might be appropriate from time to time. Sure. But like, are we going to say anything? I am overstimulated. I want less stimulus, please. We're not spending our grandkids money anymore. We're spending the money of a generation so far down the line. We'll be lucky that they haven't evolved into different creatures. The scariest part of all this is what's going on in the background. Think about this for a second. Tomorrow, we will get the new unemployment claims number. And if you remember from a week ago, that was 3.3 million, which produced a chart that looked like what happens when you mistakenly add a zero into one cell in a spreadsheet. It's like kind of flat and then just a giant line straight up. The estimates of what will come tomorrow look even more terrifying with up to 5.6 million claims. That's tomorrow. The next day, we get the first monthly unemployment rate that includes the COVID-19 era. It's only a partial month uh, with all the economic destruction going on, but it's still going to be very, very ugly. We know that President Trump has a lot more information than we do about what this economy really looks like. The fact that he feels the need to get out in front of these reports with a $2 trillion jobs plan as an opening offer should absolutely terrify all of us. The only thought more scary is this. Donald Trump, businessman president, remember him? A guy who is always focused on the economy above all else. He's looking at this virus and he is choosing to do this to the economy. He's choosing to do it. He's telling all of us that COVID-19 is serious enough to risk not only his reelection, but the entire American economy. This is not something Trump wants to do. This is something Trump thinks he has to do. If he's willing to go this far, imagine the seriousness of what we're facing. So if you're at home and you're dealing with uh, this economy, which is in a very shaky uh, place, as we've been discussing, and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do going forward, you probably a big part of that is your home. Uh, you've built up equity. You've made your payments on time. You've done everything the right way. And unfortunately, that makes you a prime target for home title fraud. Home title fraud is one of the fastest growing crimes in America. And if you want to stop home title fraud, you need to have home title lock. Home title lock protects you from these threats. And, you know, look, a lot of people are at home. They're in quarantine. You might be watching Netflix. Hackers are just hacking away and they're looking for information. And if they get your home title, they can forge it. They can make it look like they own your home, even though you're still living in it. They can bring those documents to the bank. They can get uh, loans on your equity. It's it's terrifying and it's way too easy. So if you want to protect yourself for pennies a day, go to Home Title Lock. Uh, find out if you're already a victim at HomeTitleLock.com. If you use the uh, promo code STU, you will get a month of free protection. Again, enter STU. Make sure you enter STU because that's how they know you're watching this stupid show. And then you go to HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com is the place to go. Protect yourself now. HomeTitleLock.com, promo code STU. Scott Linsigam is an international trade attorney and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He has a new op-ed in the Washington Examiner called Beware of Dogma. Looks at the coronavirus pandemic's effect on the public perception of libertarianism. I think that's just kind of like a nice way 
of, of talking about your piece because what I see in your piece is this really annoying uh, retweet meme situation where everyone says there are no libertarians in a pandemic. You fight that off, I think, pretty well here. Can you talk about what you found in thinking about this? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, I, uh, it, it, aside from the fact that, that uh, claiming that I don't exist raises all sort of, <laughs> sorts of existential dread in me, um, the fact is that uh, these tweets, these articles um, from, from a lot of folks uh, seem to really misunderstand um, what libertarians actually think um, about individual rights and about government's role in, in protecting those rights. Um, and also, they seem totally oblivious to all of the real-world libertarianism that's going on right now during the pandemic. So uh, the goal of the piece was first to just kind of explain what libertarians actually think and believe about government. Um, libertarians are not anarchists. Uh, we see a, a role for government, um, including in times of global pandemic. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, you look around and you see a lot of things that sure look like libertarianism, um, whether it's deregulation or um, uh, criminal justice actions and so forth um, that that are central planks of the libertarian platform. Yeah, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, this makes a lot of really good points about libertarianism, this moment. You can see, I right. feel like, you know, especially when you talk about the, the way the testing has, has gone down in certain medical supply situations, yeah. you see a situation where in regular times, We'll layer on all sorts of uh, regulation and hurdles and and obstacles yeah. for people to get through. But when it really freaking matters, we all realize the better way to get this done is the way the libertarian would would recommend. And you, and you look at, for example, um, the deregulation of telemedicine um, mm. or um, allowing doctors to practice medicine across state lines, um, even allowing foreign doctors to practice in the United States as long as they have equivalent certification in their home country. You know, all of these things are, they, um, are, are in place during normal times um, to protect incumbent interests um, and for other reasons, and libertarians, of course, scream about those things, saying, you know, we need to increase access, lower costs. Um, now, in an emergency, those are precisely the types of things that uh, we see the governments, state, local, federal governments doing. Yeah, you know, and it's, um, I feel like one of the things we've noticed here, maybe uh, more than I maybe even would have expected going in, is the way that the private sector has led this. I mean, you know, I, yes. as, as we saw, you know, the the crisis building, you take it seriously and it started getting more and more serious. And, and I intellectually took it very seriously. I don't think I emotionally took it seriously until the NBA was like, OK, our season's over. Right. Like that wasn't the government telling them they had to end their season. That was the NBA leading the government. Yeah, and I think you've seen um, around the country um, a, a, a lot of private companies taking the lead on whether it's producing tests or whether it's uh, in engaging in social distancing. Um, private companies, um, particularly on the West Coast, early on, a lot of big tech companies had all of their folks working from home. In the early days of the crisis, when a lot of our political class was still um, saying it was no big deal. Um, and then, of course, you've seen federalism, you know, the states and localities leading and the federal government behind. Uh, but, you know, personally, I think the best comparison to 
by looking at the actions of a regional grocery chain in Texas, the HEB, uh, compared to the actions of the CDC and the FDA during the same period. You know, HEB uh, got on the phone with retailers in China to see what was actually happening. They didn't trust the Chinese government. They didn't sit around waiting for, for uh, bureaucrats to tell them. They, they got on the phone and they realized that this was a really serious issue. And they began gaming out strategies to provide uh, supplies and logistics and so forth for their customers and their chains in mid-January. And now they have interviews with customers who have all the toilet paper they need. Um, whereas now we're seeing you know, emails um, released from the CDC that was just utter panic in the early days with no plan. Um, and now, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're facing some of the costs of, of that um, of those problems. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, it really is. I mean, of course, Texas company, you expect them to act properly. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, there, there, there's this, uh, this situation, I think it's been interesting to watch with the problems that have happened um, in the way this has been handled. I mean, the testing has been kind of like the one on the forefront, which clearly mm-hmm. was a, an issue with the bureaucracy of the CD, uh, CDC more than anything right. else. You see the lack of hospital beds going back to government restrictions on how many hospitals can be built. Um, Definitely. I, I wonder if there is, at least part of these things um, in this moment of crisis where they clear out these regulations. Do you have any optimism that these things hang around afterwards and people embrace that they actually worked? You know, I don't, unfortunately. Um, you <laughs> Just know, ruining my hope I, I, completely. So, sorry. But I mean, look, the, the fact is that you can you can envision, a. first of all, most of these things are temporary waivers. So you're not seeing these regulations actually be taken off the books. Uh, particularly, a lot of them are implemented and so, you know, the legislators are not actually going back and scratching out the law or the regulation. Like you mentioned, certificate of need. That's a great example of a state law, highly protectionist, preventing, um, you know, ad- additional hospital beds, mobile uh, MRI units, these types of things. Um, and so those laws are still in the books. They've just been waived in time of emergency. So when the emergency goes away, unfortunately, those, those laws are still there. Now, maybe it provides some momentum for reform efforts, but any good libertarian will tell you um, public choice is will still exist after the crisis, meaning that you're going to have a lot of incumbent interests that are very powerful, whether it's the American Medical Association or you know other groups, hospital groups, bureaucracy, um, that it will push back very hard on these things, while you and I, um, who are rationally ignorant about them in normal times, will go back to our, will hopefully go back to our daily lives. Yeah, no, and that's, I think, a a fundamental challenge for libertarianism in general, where, you know, like, I have uh, full uh, faith that the stuff they've jammed into this $2.2 trillion bill uh, you know, with all these different forms of leave and, and you know, funding for all sorts of things completely disconnected to, to, this, to this crisis, yeah. those things will live on forever, probably. Um, and the things that actually helped in the crisis will will go away. And, and it, I think you're yeah. right. That is, you know, it may just be that we're not focused on it. It may be that there's nothing to gain um, for some special interest group here. But there is a real challenge, and it seems very difficult to 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 cut through. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, well, it goes back to the old Milton Friedman quote that they, there's no nothing so permanent as a temporary government program, <laughs> right? Um, and 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 yeah, I think you're I think you're right. There's a great danger that you're you're extending the scope of government, and then the only thing that will go away are these um, you know individual measures, um, whether it's rebate checks or whatever. And you know, but I do think again, you know, going back to the article I wrote, this is a great example in this bill of um, the libertarian argument or the libertarian philosophy, you know, there are a lot of libertarians who very much support these rebate checks because, you know, essentially government has has shut down people's livelihoods. It's a, it's a lot like a eminent domain or constitutional mm-hmm. taking situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there you have libertarians that are in favor of government action. Um, at the at the same time, you have the libertarian warnings of of corporatism and corporate welfare and bailouts and the rest. And unfortunately, those are included too. And and I think that you're right to be um, a bit pessimistic about the future and whether these things can go away or whether it's just going to be um, they'll they'll go on kind of ad infinitum. And I think that's and that's a, that's a great point. And I think that it's one of the more fundamental misunderstandings of libertarianism, at least as I understand it, which is like limited government is a priority. Right. But it's not no government. Right. Limited right. government. I keep coming back to this thing is that I just want government to do about four things. And this is one of the things. And of course, yeah. it's the one thing they're not prepared to do. They haven't been doing correctly. It's frustrating to handle a global pandemic. But this is this is. This, to me, is the one or one or two main issues that you, you know the government should be able to handle and needs to be prepared yeah. for. Right, and and again, you know, something that got cut from the article I wrote is is uh, a classic libertarian critique of government is that. Um, jack of all trades, master of none, that the government simply is right. incapable of being so massive and that uh, because it has it's the scope of government action has grown so much that the things we really need the government to do, whether it's, you know, military spending or, or defense uh, and foreign policy, whatever, mm-hmm. um, they become incompetent in those things as well um, because they're just trying to do too much. And and again, unfortunately, you know, we're seeing some of the, the fruits of those um, the, those critiques got come to life. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like, it's a lot easier to, uh, swallow a $2.2 trillion bill when you're not $22 trillion in debt already. You know, it <laughs> makes right. things right. a lot easier. Uh, Scott Linscombe, the article right. is a beware of do- a dogma It is in the Washington examiner. It's a great read. And if you want to kind of look at this from a different perspective that you're definitely not getting from anywhere else, this is a great one to pick right. up. Uh, Scott Linscombe, Cato Thanks Institute all. as well. Thanks so much for coming on the program. All right. Back in a second. We've heard, Zeke Emanuel, that nobody could have seen this coming. The fact is, everybody saw this coming. Everybody saw this coming in early January. Hmm. It's uh, Joe Scarborough on MSNBC doing what he does best, lying. Uh, now, look, not everybody saw this coming in early January. The, the World Health Organization was busy tweeting out that there was no person-to-person transmission in January, in mid-January. Uh, it's not true that everybody saw it coming in January. Um, and it is, it is kind of typical of, of what Joe Scarborough does for whatever revisionist sort of purpose uh, he's trying to uh, accomplish at that particular moment. Um, you know, it, it, we talked about this yesterday. If you missed the show yesterday, you should go back and check it out. Uh, Stu does cheat in China because they were cheating. They were cheating on us and they did not give us the appropriate information. They either lied or told the World Health Organization to help their lie. 
uh, about the way the disease was spreading. And I think you can look at this from a perspective of a politician and say, look, wait, you know, uh, they're not a doctor. You know, what does it matter? They may have, you know, misread the situation and come up with an embarrassing clip for a commercial or whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Well, it's a big deal when the lies from China, the data from China was misleading the actual doctors, the people who are, you know, trying to deal with this uh, virus, the, the people who are modeling the virus, the, the people who, uh, who have their daily, uh, you know, day filled with trying to project where the worst things on earth are going to pop up and how bad they're going to be. Uh, here's uh, Dr. Burks talking about this at the press conference yesterday. When you talk about could we have known something different? You know, I think all of us, I mean, I was overseas when this happened in Africa. And I think when you looked at the China data originally and you said, oh, well, there's 80 million people or 20 million people in Wuhan and 80 million people in Hubei, and they come up with a number of 50,000, you start thinking of this more like SARS than you do this kind of global pandemic. I mean, I'll just be frank, that's when I looked at it, I was like, oh, well, this is not, you know, if as close as those quarters are, you know. So I think the medical community made, interpreted the Chinese data as that this was serious, but smaller than anyone expected. Because I think probably we were missing um, significant amount of the data now that when we see what happened to Italy and we see what happened to Spain. We know China was lying to us throughout this period uh, and lying to the world, and they continue to do it. One of the things I wanted to make sure we covered yesterday was to point this out. They haven't stopped lying. They're continuing to lie. They're not telling us the truth now. They're not releasing the results from all the tests that they've had. They're not giving us all the medical information that could help us deal with this pandemic that came from inside of their borders. And, you know, honestly, like this is borderline act of war stuff. You're going to have 100,000 people or more dead uh, in, in certainly globally and very well, maybe even here. The models are showing uh, those sorts of numbers. It's terrifying. It's something that we really need to take seriously. And after this happens, uh, you know, this is over. China needs to be held responsible for this. They got to stop eating bats. Can we close down the wet markets? Is that too much to ask? No more scorpions on a stick as delectable as they are. Please, let's uh, let's at least skip that. Um, and there needs to be, I don't know if it's sanctions, I don't know what it is, but it's something uh, to make sure that uh, this does not happen again. This is inexcusable. They had this information, they throttled it down because they didn't want to be embarrassed by it. And uh, it's, it's just, it's not acceptable and we need to make sure uh, that it does not happen again. Um, I want to talk to you about, let me skip around here. We've got, um, let me talk to you about uh, another government lying to us. And this is a little bit closer to home. And I, I'm very disturbed by this, too. I mean, I've said, I think I said on the air probably once or twice um, that they were not recommending that you use masks uh, to protect yourself uh, because that was what the guidelines were. And uh, there's no reason to believe uh, that that information was incorrect. You know, I I mean, we had questions about it, but it it wasn't something, you know, I, I didn't I wasn't rushing out to buy masks, at least. Well, apparently there was a really good reason for it is that they were just blatantly lying to us. Uh, they were telling us that they did, you know, they wanted to prevent a run on masks, which I understand. They want to make sure our medical professionals have the masks when they need them. Of course, that's appropriate. Uh, but the, the way to do it is not to lie to the American people and say the masks don't work. Now, it never really made sense as to why they wouldn't at least be somewhat effective. The line there is that 
Um, and studies show um, the droplets that we're talking about um, that might carry this virus. It's effective in about 89% of those situations, which is a heck of a lot better than nothing. Uh, they say, you know, a T-shirt is a fail, uh, effective in about 60% of, uh, of those situations. So it is uh, an improvement, you know, going around. And I, I, I do think we're at the point where I'm not going to laugh at you anymore if you look like a weirdo with a mask on. It's probably the right thing to do, honestly, at this point. I'm going to start wearing like hoodies and masks and covering up and like just because I don't want to talk to people. Even when this thing's over, I'm just going to be antisocial and wear a mask just to be safe. It's for my health. It's for your health. But if you have a mask and, uh, and you have, uh, uh, you don't, you're not that embarrassed to wear it, uh, it's probably a smart idea at this point to go, when you're going out in public to areas that are highly traveled, uh, it might be smart to put that thing on. Pop it on. means you don't have to talk to anybody. You get that benefit out of it, too. But it does protect you. I'm very, I think, you know, we had this report of Adam Schiff of starting another freaking commission to look into our response, which obviously is not, it's just going to be a venue for him to attack the president yet again. Um, because he's clearly obsessed with the man. But beyond that, I hope somebody actually does look into why we were getting that advice, why that was widely distributed. You, can't, like, you, can, you can make recommendations to the American people, but you can't just lie to them. Um, and that, that is, that is uh, totally wrong. We need an honest government who's going to tell us how to really cure this virus. A government like Turkmenistan. Uh, because Gurbangoli Berde... Berde Mukhaw... Madoff, I don't know, something like that. I had it all, I had it all spelled out phonetically before, but I didn't bring it with me. Bottom line is, he's the dentist of the old guy, uh, Turkmen Bashi, who used to run that country, and he, they have come up with an actual cure for coronavirus, uh, and it's something I think we need to implement. Um, he just banned the word. If you're saying the word in, in public, then you could be arrested and taken to prison. That means there's no chance of coronavirus spreading in the country because it'll be arrested if it does. So maybe we'll maybe we'll implement that on this trip. Maybe Friday we'll just ban the word coronavirus and then we'll cure it for everybody's good. Back in a second. Giancarlo Sopo is a writer at The Blaze, a media strategist and, of course, the 2019 regional fellow at the National Review Institute. Giancarlo, um, I'm learning something here uh, because, you know, people who are in Dallas, about half of them are coming in. We realize that we're the expendable ones. They don't care if we're in here breathing in coronavirus. They're having you stay home, which I said, I think says something about uh, about how much they like you. Well, you know, I, I, I think I'm like the only Cuban at the blaze. So we, we, we do have to keep me in as much of a healthy state as possible. <laughs> there we go. It's, it's important to keep those quotas all, all set. Now, we definitely at least have one Cuban here. Um, I'm curious, um, as you've been watching this, just give me a give me a picture of your of your day right now. What is it? Uh, how, how are you dealing with all of this? Um, you know, so my mom lives in in Florida and uh, she she has a pre-existing condition with her immune system compromised. So mm. uh, I check in on her on a pretty regular basis. It's the first thing I do. Uh, you know, she's fine. She's gonna get through this, but she hasn't left her house in three weeks. So I'm trying to be a good son and make sure that she's okay and checking in on her. I would check in on her anyway on a, on a daily basis, but now I, you know, we FaceTime and I, I, I check in on how she's doing. My wife is now working from home uh, she she cannot perform her job in the middle of this uh, because she works with kids providing uh, autism therapy. 
So she, you know, she can't go to her client's home. She can't uh, play with the kids, which is part of her job. So it's definitely having an effect on our lives here. Uh, you know, and I'm just, um, I'm just trying to stay busy reading, um, working and, uh, you know, I, I already w- did a lot of work from home. So for me, that's not a big change, but I'm really worried about what I'm seeing in different cities. I have friends on the front lines of this in New York, two friends actually who are doctors in New York who are going through a really difficult time right now. So I check in on them very often and, and try to keep them in high spirits. It is one of these weird dynamics I've noticed as this has kind of developed in that, like the people who are bringing the stories to everybody in America about what, what is going on with this are journalists or, you know, commentators who, generally speaking, can do their jobs from home or at least close to it um, and, and aren't necessarily struggling in the same ways. It is it's a it's kind of a strange dynamic. And, and it, I, I got to imagine it's somewhat weird to experience for someone who's not in this dumb business we're in. Yeah. And I also I, you know, look, I feel really bad for people who work in retail, people who work hourly wage jobs, people in the hospitality industry realtors who can't show properties right now, yeah. people in the mortgage industry. Uh, you know, I, I also have a sinking feeling it's going to start really affecting people in, uh, you know, in, in advertising and marketing and public relations because as companies don't have much revenue because everything is locked down, they're going to start cutting back on their marketing budget. So it's affecting a lot of people in different ways, um, but nothing compared to what we're seeing, like those those people who are working on the front lines. Yeah. Uh, they're incredibly brave, and I think we have to do everything to support them during this difficult moment. Um, you know, the media kind of creates its own bubble in another way, too, which is they see the world in a much different way than the average person does. And we've seen this a lot um, as we've gone through this. There is some good news out there. There are people who are stepping up. There are people who are doing something. There are people who are, uh, you know, sacrificing a lot to try to help out in this situation. Oftentimes, those groups wind up being religious groups. And it seems like whenever anyone brings up God, uh, the media just immediately turns on them. And instead of making them into a a heroic person who's trying to help in in a crisis, they become somehow the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 pretty insane. So we, we saw the situation yesterday with Mike Lindell, the CEO of, of uh, or, or I think it's called the My pillow, pillow guy yeah. mm-hmm. on, on Twitter. Yeah, I think that was trending. Um, and just because he encouraged Americans to read the Bible during this difficult moment, uh, people were bashing him. They were ridiculing him. I saw somebody on my personal Facebook feed say, well, that guy's an idiot. He should be telling people to read science books. Why are we reading this 2,000-year-old book right now? It's just just absolute ignorance of what the Bible is for, the kind of the message that it has uh, for each of us. Um, You know, and I've I've been really, though, encouraged. I'm seeing a lot of faith groups uh, still going out in the community and helping people. We see that happening right now in New York City and Central Park where you, you have a, a, an evangelical Christian charity that is building an emergency hospital yeah. in Central Park. Um, you know, if, unfortunately, in a city where it's, it's, its top newspaper just ran an op-ed a few, a few days ago, essentially scapegoating evangelical Christians for this crisis. There's absolutely no evidence that evangelical Christians are violating uh, the social distancing guidelines at, at 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 a different rate than anybody else. In fact, if you look at the polling and when you break down the polling along religious lines, you see that uh, people of faith are actually 
adhering to the social distancing guidelines at higher rates than people who are agnostic or atheist. So there's absolutely like zero basis for like for for singling out people of faith during th this time. But, you know, this is what happens, right? Like when when you have moments of crisis, people start scapegoating different groups. And it's really sad to see people of faith being targeted in this way. I mean, it's obviously not a healthy instinct uh, for people, but it does seem to be somewhat uh, human. You, you have a uh, you get into a difficult position. You want to throw blame around to your uh, political enemies. Uh, but I feel like there was always an exemption of this stupid thing that we do when it came to somebody really helping out, someone stepping up with, you know, sacrificing their own, you know, uh, their own time, their own uh, f finances, um, donating to a charity in a big way. I felt like that's always been kind of exempt. You know, you praise George Clooney for, uh, you know, donating to some cause that maybe you've never even heard of somewhere in the world. Uh, that's always been, I think, yeah. a positive. And, and, and for whatever reason now, I don't know if it's, we're just that divided or the, the, you know, social media or people are just uniquely terrible these days, but it seems to have gone away. Yeah, I mean, like, so we, we all saw growing up someone like Paul Newman who would, who would have, uh, and I, I think most people, if they know him now, they know Paul Newman because of his salad dressing lines, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But Paul Newman is like this liberal Hollywood actor uh, who he was a he was a he was a he was an active Democrat, a liberal. Uh, he he did a lot of, but he did a lot of charity work. And I don't rem remember uh, conservatives singling him out or trying to mock him in any way because of his political beliefs. Uh, you know, because he was like such a good guy. So when I see people really uh, bash like these Christian groups that are doing this really amazing work, or ask, well, like I saw somebody point out yesterday, well, have, have you have you looked at their stance on gay marriage? And I was like, look, man, I I went to a Catholic school, right? Like <laughs> the people I went to school with, the, the priests who ran my school, they're not big on gay marriage either, uh, and they're perfectly decent people. You could just disagree with them on that issue. I I tend to disagree with them on on that issue in terms of matters of like social public policy. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's like a really, we're like, we're in a really weird state where we're creating these ideological purity tests and it's, it's going to render us incapable of like dealing with one another and supporting one another during these difficult moments. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as to your kind of your background. Um, you know, you actually, I believe announced on this program uh, that you were going to be voting for Donald Trump um, for the first time. Um, but you came from a background where you used to be a Democrat. And I wonder if you, as you look kind of at the lay of the land here as we're going through this, do you see that sort of middle of the road Democrat that, uh, you know, might be, I don't know, the sort of common sense uh, of Democrat of, of, of past generations? I, I feel a lot of times I, they don't get any representation in the media at all. Are you, I mean, I would assume a lot of your friends are probably still in that group. Are, are you still seeing them represented? How are they acting? So, you know, it's funny. Like, um, I have a group chat with, with my best friends from, uh, from high school, and I don't really think that any of them, with the exception of maybe one, voted for Donald Trump in 2016. But especially in light of the crisis and everything that's happening, I'm seeing a lot of them uh, really take a, take a second look. They appreciate these daily briefings. They see what the White House is doing on the coronavirus. So 
I think, you know, like, like people are really starting to take a second look at the president, people who didn't vote for him in 2016, and they're liking what they're seeing. And that's what we see with the polling, which is why CNN, MSNBC, and uh, like, you know, the, that NPR station in Washington state, that's why they're, they're pushing so hard to, sh- to shut down these briefings and not transmit them. Because what there's what you see in the polling, actually, the reason why Donald Trump's uh, numbers are going up is because Democrats, in, in large part, because Democratic leaning independents and Democrats are saying, hey, he's, he's doing a, like he's doing a good job. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like knowing how the communications business works and knowing how to how the media business works. I, I am absolutely certain that what these what these stations are now doing at the request of Democratic operatives and campaign strategists is to stop airing these press conferences because uh, they're losing their own base now to Donald Trump. And that terrifies the left. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Um, last thing here, let me uh, give you to take off your media strategist hat here for a second and put on your epidemiologist uh, uh, hat. Where does this, oh, I mean, that's not a good hat. no, it's not. I don't I don't even own the hat. Um, I mean, just as your vibe here, what is, what the heck does our, our country look like in a couple of months? I mean, I, I really am. You know, I, I feel like it's really I'm at that point where I have uh, I have no concept uh, anymore as to where this thing goes. And I really I don't know what I mean, we're going to see major changes that go on in our country, no matter how serious this thing gets that are never going to go back to the way they were. I mean, this is a real, this is the craziest thing I've ever been through in my entire life. No, it, it's really distressing. So, you know, it's uh, a couple of nights ago, I was watching, um, I have this habit of uh, every year on my birthday, I, there's a couple of things that I do. And one of them is that I, I, I watch the movie Big uh, <laughs> with Tom Hanks. Nice. And, and yeah, I, mean, I also read uh, some Mark Twain uh, just, just kind of, a, I'm a creature of habit. Um, so I was watching that movie and I was like, oh my God, like they're at a baseball game. They're at FAO shorts. They're out shopping. They're interacting with people. Like it gave me a profound sense of nostalgia for the days where we could just do that, uh, you know, and, and without thinking twice about it or, or something as simple as like going to a baseball game. Like it was opening day a couple of days ago. Um, I would have been at a Rangers game or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm, I'm really saddened by what's happening. I, I I hope that people take the social distancing guidelines seriously because the more that we cooperate, the more that we follow this plan that the White House has has put forward, the faster I think that we can get through this and the less painful that it'll be because what you don't want is what you're describing. We don't want to still be in this situation six months from now. So I, I, I think the, the, some of the data that I saw today shows some promising signs so people just need to continue following this and if they're not doing it to take it seriously and if you're already doing it just to like to kind of double down and be even more strict with yourself so we can get through this nightmare as quickly as possible Mm. and not even to mention that the movie you're talking about the star of the movie has coronavirus that's how freaking weird of a world we're in uh, right, Giancarlo. Yeah. yeah, that's bizarre. Giancarlo Sopo, uh, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, also, if you uh, like watching Giancarlo here and uh, hanging out with us, uh, make sure you get a subscription to Blaze TV where you'll get all of the, the all of the stuff that we do uh, and a special discount. I mean, you're in quarantine. You got to have something to watch, right? Uh, 30 bucks off right now. Use the promo code Stu at blazetv.com slash Stu. The promo code is Stu and make sure you use that promo code because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Back in a second.
know, the perfect T-shirt to wear with your surgical mask at the store is, of course, this one. Uh, sorry, can't make it self-quarantine. This is going to give you, you are going to be just almost impossible to actually approach and be talked to. And that's, I know, the goal of at least me uh, and this entire audience. We'll see you tomorrow. Pick it up at StuDoesMerch.com.